Hey, I'm Paul Perry. I'm Kim Hartsock, and you're listening to The Wrap, a Warren Abert podcast for business leaders designed to help you access vital business information and trends when you need it. So you can listen, learn, and then get on with your day. Now, let's get down to business. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Wrap. And today we're talking about what you should know about the Inflation Reduction Act and taxes. And we are very excited to have our guests back with us for a record, I think, fifth time, our tax partners, Lisa Billings and William Dow. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, glad to be back. And Lisa and William are going to share with us today what we need to know about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which President Biden signed into law on Tuesday, August 16th. And this bill is a sprawling climate tax and health care bill that covers a lot of different things. And so welcome, Lisa and William, to help us understand this bill. Hey there, I'm Lisa Billings. I'm with Warren Averitt's Tax Division in Birmingham. I work primarily with private equity and real estate clients um, across the U.S. Hi, I'm William Dow, a member in the Tax Division in the Birmingham office. I work with a lot of you know private equity groups, a lot of large corporations um, in the corporate tax and the M&A area. So the good news for most taxpayers is that this act is not designed to increase taxes on small businesses or families making less, $400,000 or less. Um, so I know that there are different areas of this tax bill that we really want to talk about today. So let's, let's jump to the first one. Uh, and, you know, Lisa William, let's, I think there was something in there about corporate minimum tax. Can you, can you give us an update on that? Yeah, it's interesting, Paul, that you mentioned that about that it's not designed to increase tax on families making less than 500000 Because what you're going to see is this kind of goes on both ends of the spectrum. The first couple items we're going to talk about really apply to very large corporations. Um, so it doesn't even apply to a lot of individuals. But some of the tax ramifications could affect, could affect individuals um, all over the spectrum, even those making less than $400,000. So although there's no specific tax directly impacting families making less than 400000 as you can see that we're about to talk about that some of these tax hitting corporations could indirectly affect these families. That'll be interesting. And so the first thing you mentioned is the um, corporate minimum tax, which they also refer to as the business minimum tax. And this is one they've been lobbying around for years, wanting to go after corporations um, that, that you know show a lot of profit on their financial statements, but pay very little tax on their tax returns. And, and that's something that the press has loved over the years to get hold of tax information on these large public companies. Um, you know, they're reporting billions of dollars in profits, but maybe show very little tax because of just some tax planning and, and, and timing differences in tax. Um, so this tax imposes a 15% minimum tax on um, corporations that basically have over a billion dollars in revenue. And we can go a little more detail about that. But basically you have some steps. You have to first determine who's an applicable corporation. How do you measure this tax? And when do they have to pay this tax? Um, so Lisa can help me kind of go into more detail on this. Um, but the first one we'll touch on is really what is an applicable corporation this applies to? Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things to, you know, this is really set to get these big corporations that are out there. So it's a three-year average of a billion um, dollars of applicable financial statement income. And so... And you said billion with a billion. 
with a B, <laughs> with a B. Yes. And so, you know, in true, true, true fashion here, we have created a new definition for what is financial statement income. So everybody's still trying to wrap their head around that piece, but it is a billion dollars of income, three-year average. So if you are foreign-owned, there's a lower threshold that would make you subject to this. Um, but for U.S.-owned corporations, it's only going to affect a, a handful of entities. Yeah, and that's a good point to touch on, Lisa, because when you, when you get into these foreign-owned corporations, which, you know, there's a lot of that in the press as well, um, you know, it talks about that, you know, the U.S. members only have to have $100 million of income as long as the overall group meets the billion dollar test. And some of the most complicated things in this bill is, you know, what, what is a group determining the test and who is this tax assessed on? Cause there are two different items really, because the, the group test is a larger test, but the tax then is only assessed on the small, smaller and possibly U S based um, entity. Yeah. And I foresee that to be, um, something that will impact financial statements perhaps and you know there might be a reconciling schedule in the back of audited financial statements um, you know as you know audited financial statements have to disclose uncertain tax positions so this could factor into auditors you know understanding the risk of of how a, a client uh, has defined themselves in a group or taken um, a position on that so this does have far-reaching impact outside of just simply preparing a tax return. Exactly. Because, you know, when you start looking at the testing, you look at the group and the group can include um, partnerships that the corporation controls, et cetera, items like that. So, so it is very far-reaching. So this is, this is an area that there are a lot of questions that are still out there. You know, one is, you know, as Lisa touched on, is you look at the test for the last three years, generally preceding the current year. What if you've only been in existence less than three years? Well, you just look at the number of years you've been in existence. So it can still still uh, you know apply to a you know a, a newly established corporation. But again, the billion dollar test, <laughs> that's surely going to be a company that's been around for a while to, to meet that test. So William, what about companies that uh, maybe had a dip in their revenue in uh, because of COVID in 2020 and using that as a as part of your three-year look back? Is this a test you have to do every year? Yeah, you do it. Uh, you do basically do it every year. And you, again, you look at the th- past three years. So um, basically, looking at 2023, you look at your audited financial statements for 2021 and 22. Mm. Um, now, once a taxpayer is an what they call an applicable corporation, this applies to you. It remains applicable for all future years. So you think about a corporation could have a big, you know, a big jump one year and hit it, you know, by, uh, over really over three year average. Then even though they have a dip, let's say because of the recession, things fall down or another COVID scare, they're still going to be subject to that tax even on their lower earnings. That's interesting. So it's going to hit them. And of course, it says that, you know, there's a parenthetical that says unless Treasury provides an exemption. So that's going to be an area there's going to be a lot of lobbying about, about trying to get exemptions for that. And what happens when you split up a corporation or a spinoff? You know, how do you determine that? So you can see all the questions that are there, you know, because, you know, you, you, you allocate it out to all the members. So you know, look at some of these um, spinoffs that have happened over the last year or two. You know, h- how do you determine who that tax they would follow? So again, there are a lot of questions that are still kind of out there that really, you know, people are really going to be struggling with. Another point that is in the act is around stock repurchases. And 
companies oftentimes use that as a tax strategy. And that appeared that loophole um, was caught in this act. So can Lisa and William talk to us a little bit about how that is brought into the act and what our listeners need to know about that? So the stock repurchases provision is a 1% tax on stock repurchases of public securities. And there's a lot of, like the corporate AMT, there's some new definitions, some, some que- a lot of questions around what this will apply to, but they, they've released some statistics. And in 2021, the U.S. set a record for stock repurchases of almost $900 billion. So that, that's really what they're going after is these large public companies that are repurchasing stock to possibly inflate stock prices. So they, they're just using this as a, another revenue raiser that they can go after the corporations. You know, the stock buybacks, again, you know, as Lisa mentioned, uh, is only it's a 1% tax and it's on public companies. Um, but there has to be more than a million dollars in buybacks. Um, which again, that's a small threshold for a large public company. Now it doesn't apply to reorganizations, um, items like that, and so you know those those can be exempted. Now on, on this repurchase, you reduce it by stock issuances. So you look at it if throughout through the year, you know what were your buybacks less your issuances, and issuances can issuances can be your normal stock issuances. It can also be stocks that are issued in regard to employee plans like stock. Stock option exercises, restricted stock items like that. Um, also, any repurchases that are used to go into like an ESOP are exempted. But again, there are a lot of questions out there, and you know, the, a lot of um, law firms have already reached out to Treasury saying we need guidance on this before the end of the year on how this is going to apply. You know, when it comes into effect, because it does say there that this applies to any stockbacks that are quote economically similar, close quote, to a uh, Super specific. Very specific. So it gives them, um, it's kind of like that final catch-all of, well, it's up to their discretion <laughs> what it yeah. applies to. Because, because again, you know, you can have um, a lot of M&A transactions where, you know, it could look like a buyback, you know, bootstrap acquisitions, et cetera. And there's a lot of concern about preferred stock because a lot of times, um, you know, that's the first stock that's repurchased. And a lot of people look at preferred stock basically as more like a fixed income instrument. You know, and so it's so people, you know, generally has a set buyback price, et cetera. And what about when you have call features or mandatory, mandatorily redeemable preferred stock issues like that? You know, so, so there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And, and a final thing just to touch on, you know, the, these two items, the um, the business minimum tax and the stock buyback tax. You know, there's been some some uh, confusion out there about who it applies to. And we touched on that the business minimum tax is on those with the billion dollar threshold and the buyback is only on those that are um, public companies. There's some confusion because the minimum tax, there's some literature out there that says that you have to be a public company for this to apply to. And that's not the case. You just have to meet this income test. Also, there was a lot of lobbying about who this applies to in private equity groups, et cetera. And there's been some exemption from that because a lot of private equity groups may be combined, may meet this test. So, uh, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how all this comes together. And one thing also to kind of remember in both of these provisions is they don't take effect until 23. So there may be some activity towards the end of the year just trying to push buybacks and uh, you know do some transactions before the end of 22 so that we don't have to worry about these provisions. 
Want to receive a monthly newsletter with wrap topics? Then head on over to warrenabert.com forward slash the wrap and subscribe to our email list to have it delivered right to your inbox. Now, back to the show. Interesting stuff there on that. So let's um let's switch gears to how this bill impacts individuals. I think I saw some credits for electric vehicles or, or more green energy tax provisions. Can you talk about that for a second? Sure. So they, they extended the electric vehicle tax credit, but they made some modifications to it that are kind of interesting. First, in order to get the credit now, individual taxpayers have to have an adjusted gross income of 300000 or less if they're joint if they're joint filers, or 150000 or less if they're a single filer. So it, it really limits, you know, we do have the credit, but it does limit who can take them. Also, they limited how much the car could cost. So it's limited to electric vehicles that are under $55,000 MSRP for a car and $80,000 MSRP for a van, pickup, or an SUV. So, so it does cut out, you know, a lot of the higher end electric vehicles out of this credit. The other thing is all the vehicles have to have final assembly occurring in the U.S. And so if you're buying a car, you've got to, not only do you have to meet the MSRP requirements now, but you actually have to make sure that the car was finally assembled in the U.S. Yeah. And Lisa, you know, there's some interesting provisions in there as well about um, the battery makeup and where the components came in from the battery. You know, there's a certain lot of tests there. You know, it can't come from China. And they're the call, what they call also foreign entities of concern that they look at. And as you said, final assembly in the U.S. And so that's going to really fall on the manufacturers to be able to attest to that. That's not going to fall on, you know, taxpayers to, to look at that. It'll just be, you know, in their sales literature, whether um, it qualifies. And a couple other interesting things that came out of the bill, you know, currently there's a, a limit on companies of, uh, I think it's 200,000 vehicles, that once they meet that limit, they no longer qualify for any credit. So there's been some lobbying. So they got rid of that vehicle limit. So it's going to be unlimited now for the manufacturers, which is good. Also, um, you're going to be able to start, you can transfer the credit back to the dealer. So if you have a taxpayer that's maybe in lower income bracket, whatever, they really can't use the credit, they can sell it back to the dealer, you know, basically if the dealer can use it, but that's something that's there. Also, they're also bringing into starting in 2023 used electric vehicles. And it's interesting, the, the word electric, electric is now gone. You have to refer to them as clean vehicle. That's now what it's called. They, they don't like the word electric. So it's now just going to be called clean. If you think about it, it just sounds, sounds better to, you know, to, to the politicians. You know, they're doing the clean vehicles. Makes sense. So, um, you know, so used ones will come into play um, starting in 2023. It has to be at least two years old. And it must be the first transfer of the vehicle. Um, there's also lower qualifying dollar amounts of the car, and the qualifying vehicle is supposed to seventy, you know, seventy five hundred for new vehicles. This is, you know, the lesser of four thousand dollars or thirty percent of the sales price. And again, I said earlier that it's a twenty five thousand dollar limit on the sales price anyway. So, you know, a lot of issues there. And um, there are also, as Lisa mentioned, AGI limits. Uh, there are lower limits now on even the used vehicle purchases. Again, what should be simple, as you can see just from this limited discussion, is fairly complex when you start looking at who it applies to, when it applies, um, et cetera. So, you know, expect a lot more literature out there, a lot more advertising. And again, this will fall on the the person selling it, you know, the companies, you know, to Casey, 
have this information be able to attest to the buyers that they qualify for this credit. And there were some other green energy credits in there around more home ownership type credits. So there are some home energy credits for doing energy efficient property in your home. You know, they've had some of these around. They've been kept at $500 per taxpayer. Now there's a lifetime credit of $1,200 per taxpayer. So they do have them for putting, you know, energy efficient, you know, windows, doors, HVAC, those types of things. If you, there's some solar credits, things like that, that they do have out there. But for a residential, for an individual taxpayer looking to get a tax credit for their residence, you know, it does cap out at $1,200 over the lifetime. So it is a credit and it's out there, but it's not going to be huge dollars. You know, nothing of note, um, talking about these credits, you know, as Lisa was just saying, you know, they've expanded those for, you know, residential, they've expanded them a lot in the business arena. But another area they've done is the transfer of credits. Um, and it allows taxpayers to transfer a portion or all or a portion of the credits as long as it's to an unrelated party. And again, a lot of them are the business credits. I mean, here's some exciting ones like the carbon oxide sequestration credit. I, I have no idea what that even means. Um, clean hydrogen production credit, clean electric production credit. It goes on and on. But it's a lot of these credits you see applied to businesses. So I think what you're going to see is probably a rise in the industry of um brokers that are selling credits because you can have a lot of these industries maybe that don't need the credit. So they'll package them up and sell them. So it'll be a way for businesses to get money and some taxpayers to get, you know, some tax credits out of it. Um, you know, as, as, you know, as far as a good investment, any other uh, extended credits for individuals from the bill? No, not really. There's really, like William said, there's a ton of business credits that are very specific credits out there, but there's not a lot for individuals. This is really a business credit heavy bill. So I think uh, I saw something on there about uh, funding for the IRS. Uh, can you all talk a little bit about what that relates to? Yeah, th- you know, that, that's one kind of one of the, the, not the funniest things, but it's gotten a lot of press lately. A lot of attention because you know they basically allocated a bit um, eighty billion dollars to go to the IRS for IRS enforcement. What's funny is on on kind of on the before this hit, someone found an ad that was presented by the IRS was sent out looking for criminal investigation division agents, you know, trying to get candidates, and it says you must be willing to use deadly force. You know, I mean, you know, and th- that just was kind of comical because it's like, you know, how often does an IRS agent, you know, <laughs> do that? Plus, you know, imagine being a, a, a taxpayer and knowing that that's out there. Listen, um, William, accountants are very threatening. They are. They are. They are we're very right threatening yeah. people. Yeah, we're people are scared threat. of us. <laughs> yeah. If anybody saw the movie The Accountant, they'll know that. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so basically it's for IRS enforcement and, and they break that down by a lot of things they're supposed to do with that. You know, one thing is they've allocated 15 million of that for the IRS to come up with it, see, you know, to see about doing their own e-file system. That's interesting because, you know, that's a very complicated thing to do. So kind of interesting to see how that comes out. But right now, the IRS is in such a, a, you know, a bad place as far as PR and just where they are, just because a lot of it's because of COVID. They just got so behind, you know, on processing returns. They're, you know, long waits, you know, a couple hours if you call. So, you know, to the extent they can use this to work in those areas, I think that will go a long way. What are some of the other de- provisions that were discussed in there that that maybe we haven't touched on yet that you want the listeners to know about? 
One thing that they did do at the last minute was they added in this extension of on the limitation for excess business losses, which affects non-corporate taxpayers. So this is really one of the few business provisions that affects a non-corporate entity. And so, you know, you have S-Corps and partnerships that, you know, pass their income on to their owners. And this this limitation came into effect back with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, and it was set to expire in 2026, and they actually extended it two more years, which if an individual t- taxpayer gets a business loss greater than $500,000, it actually gets suspended like a net operating loss and carried forward. So that provision is 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 extended for two years now till 2028. You know, I think that's an interesting one um, to point out because you know, again, that can that can impact taxpayers under the 400,000, which Absolutely. you know they, they were very clear. They're saying this will not impact taxpayers with they make less than 400,000. Well, this right here is one that definitely can come into play. Another thing there that, that there was a lot of lobbying, uh, a lot of discussion out there about the carried interest legislation, uh, meaning that they would you know you know imposed, you know, tax on these carried interests that, you know, a lot of, you know, fund managers get um, in a way of, you know, supposedly it's compensation, but they, you know, they get the favorable tax treatment on it. And that was basically a lot of lobbying went on um, right at the end with the bill being finalized and that got pulled. So that was not in the final bill, but they had to do some trade-offs for it. Um, You know, because one thing there was going to be, there was discussion about having in there about bringing, doing away with the salt cap you know, the $10,000 limit on tax reductions for individuals, um, that was pulled to help pay for it um, as part of it. So um, it's interesting, you know, you, we can almost do a whole podcast just on the the lobbying and issues that went on behind the scenes and some of this legislation that, that may be more interesting to some of these listeners than <laughs> what finally came out of it. We may have to try to schedule that. And we'll, we'll try to find somebody in, in, in Washington that wants to, wants to join us. Yeah. So as you know, William and Lisa, here on The Wrap, we always wrap it up in 60 seconds or less. So what would you like to leave the listeners with in regards to what they need to know about the Inflation Reduction Act? I would just say, you know, that um, has a lot of implications, but a lot of it's for large corporations as far as the tax increases. And you see a lot of these tax credits that are going to really be beneficial uh, to the individuals. And so I think it's just going to be kind of wait and see. There'll be a lot more guidance that's coming out. Um, and there are a lot more questions than answers right now. And so it's going to be, my view, just be, be patient and wait and see. I, I agree. And I think that it is always look deeper into what you hear. Don't just take the sound bite because chances are there's a lot more details behind it in this bill. William, Lisa, it's a pleasure to uh, always have you on uh, the podcast. And we look forward to uh, the next time you can join us. Thank you, Lisa and William. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And that's a wrap. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on your streaming platform. To check out more episodes, subscribe to the podcast series or make a suggestion of other topics you want to hear. Visit us at warrenabritt.com forward slash the wrap.